Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. This week, battles between the Sudanese army and a rival military force shut down cities and towns across Sudan. We're going to look today at what's happening, what's triggered the fighting, and what can stop the slide into all-out war. Tonight, Sudan descending into violence, with deadly gun battles exploding on the streets of the capital Khartoum. Military jets taking to the skies, the fighting causing widespread destruction. This house reportedly hit by shelling. A powerful rogue faction of Sudan's military launching a coup, going to war with the regular army, which is led by the Sudanese leader, General Fatah al-Bahan. The fighting pits the Sudanese army, led by General Fatah al-Burhan, the Sudanese leader, against a powerful paramilitary faction, the Rapid Support Forces. That's led by Mohamed Hamdan Dagalo, who's widely known as Hemeti. Al-Burhan and Hemeti have a long history together. They fought on the same side against rebels in Darfur some years ago. In 2019, as protesters gathered in Sudanese streets against President Omar al-Bashir, the two men clubbed together to oust their former patron. For about a year afterwards, they shared power with civilians. But then, in October 2021, they launched another coup and seized power again. In December last year, they reached a deal to hand power back to civilians. This is Al-Burhan talking about the agreement. The reality has made us all remove ourselves and our political interests and place the interests of the nation and the people above all. Since then, the trouble has been brewing between the two forces, mostly over Hameti's reluctance to integrate his tens of thousands of men into the army command. They've been on the brink of fighting before, but mediators managed to walk them back. This time, though, they appear hell-bent on destroying one another. Despite a ceasefire announcement, the fighting between the Sudanese army and the paramilitary rapid support forces shows no sign of easing. The humanitarian cost is rising. Hundreds of people have been killed and thousands injured. Healthcare services have been brought to a standstill. After heavy bombardment, hospitals and clinics are closed, leaving patients untreated. Ambulances have been targeted, preventing them from reaching the wounded. The human toll could be devastating, with millions of people trapped in the capital Khartoum and other cities and towns. There's also a danger of outside powers getting sucked in. Both men have close ties to the Gulf, and Egypt backs the Sudanese military. So is fighting in Gulf cities, what are the two sides battling over? Is either likely to prevail? And can the Gulf Arab capitals that have done much to empower the two men walk them back from disaster? Just a quick note before we move to the conversation. So we recorded this on Thursday evening. On Friday night, the two sides appeared to have agreed to a ceasefire over the Eid holiday, something that many people, including Crisis Group, have been calling for. Whether that ceasefire will hold remains to be seen. Previous ceasefires have quickly broken down. So I'm very happy to welcome on Shawit Wazim Mikhail. Shawit is Crisis Group's Sudan expert, and Alan Boswell, who's our One of Africa director. Shawit, Alan, welcome on. Thank you, Richard. Thanks for having us on, Richard. Very good. So why don't we start with, um, do we have a clear sense of what the fighting looks like now, both in Khartoum and in different parts of the country? Uh, well, it's been six days since this power struggle resulted in violent clashes that began in the capital Khartoum and the northern town of Meroe, and then very quickly spread across Sudan. So far, in addition to Khartoum, eight of Sudan's 18 states, particularly, you know, the capitals of North Central and South Darfur, North Kordofan, Kassala, Gadarif, and Red Sea states have witnessed heavy fighting, mostly concentrated in relatively densely populated towns where the two armies either have military bases or their headquarters or they're fighting for a strategic site. In Khartoum and elsewhere, Gunfire, airstrikes, and explosions continue to be heard. Armored vehicles, pickup trucks carrying anti-aircraft missiles have become a common sight. The army has so far managed to take control of a number of cities, including in Kassala, Gadarif, and Port Sudan, while the RSF has the upper hand in many parts of Darfur. But in most other places, including in Khartoum, there is no indication that either group has the upper hand. The army is in control of Khartoum airport, 
But it's not certain who controls many other strategic sites like the presidential palace and, you know, important bridges that connect Khartoum City with other satellite cities, you know, have changed hands multiple times between the army and the RSF. Sudan is no stranger to wars, or parts of Sudan are no stranger to wars, but fighting in the city, this hasn't happened before. I mean, this must be a big shock for people in Khartoum. Absolutely. It came as a shock. Um, you know, when the conflict started uh, on Saturday morning, civilians woke up to heavy gunfires. And civilians have been caught in the crossfire with many homes destroyed. The conflict has so far led to an estimated death of almost 200 civilians. Um, and injured more than 1,200, um, according to Sudan's Medical Association. Obviously, the actual number may be difficult to determine as people are finding it difficult to go to hospitals, you know, even to leave their homes. So we don't know the actual numbers. And we've seen there is growing food and drinking water shortage, and the few grocery stores that are still open are running out of supplies. Most residents are also... Uh, complaining that they are out of electricity in very high temperatures. Uh, hospitals are running out of life-saving supplies. They're actually being looted and some have been shelled. So a very bad situation in Khartoum and surrounding areas and many other towns across Sudan. I just want to stress something that you said there, which is obviously uh, Sudan is a place which has experienced uh, a lot of conflict in its history, basically throughout its history. Um, but as you said, Sudan and really the region has never seen a conflict um, like this. It is concentrated in Khartoum. Um, Khartoum is was always the place that Sudanese would flee to escape conflict. There's never been all-out urban warfare like this. And, and bizarrely, a lot of the rural villages, um, which are the place where historically it's been very insecure, um, we don't know what's happening in a lot of those areas, but it looks like the, the fighting is basically concentrated in the towns and the cities. And that means we are, as Sherwood said, uh, looking at a full-scale humanitarian disaster because you essentially have millions of people inside Khartoum who are caught in this conflict. And it it really, I mean, we have the Sudanese Air Force bombing Khartoum. We have the uh, RSF soldiers, lots of reports of them looting within the capital. You can imagine that trade is cut off, electricity has been cut off, water is scarce. I have friends who are hiding in basements with hardly any cell phone charge left because they've run out of electricity, running out of water, running out of food. Uh, the ceasefires keep breaking down. I mean, you can imagine that happening across an entire city of, of, of millions of people in a place which was, which was already uh, facing great difficulties before. And Alan, just to pick up on something that you said, I mean, it shows a bit about the nature of the two forces so that RSF, these widespread reports that they're going through neighborhoods and and looting, and the army, the Sudanese armed forces, have the advantage of air power. They've been conducting these airstrikes, trying to hit RSF supply lines, RSF bases, RSF warehouses. But these are in residential areas in Khartoum, right, with, with civilians caught up in that. The bombing of residential areas is obviously affecting civilians. The reporting is very difficult to get, um, so we're mostly relying a lot on social media uh, reports, uh, but for sure people's homes are getting hit in these attacks. And then something else, because of the bombing of the rapid support forces supply lines and, and warehouses, it's probably one of the driving factors that has these RSF fighters doing such widespread looting, although there's obviously just a lot of uh, chain of command problems with the RSF force, because in, in many ways it's just a collection of militias. This has been really terrible for civilians on multiple levels, and we're worried about the stability of Sudan. But on top of that, you just have this humanitarian crisis, which is unfolding at a pace that I've never really seen before. So I want to talk in a moment about the two protagonists, about Hemeti and, uh, and, and Borhan. But before we do that, you know, watching from the outside, this seemed to escalate very quickly. Obviously, it had been building. There'd long been these tensions between these two military forces, but as it happened over last weekend, it seemed to happen very quickly. Do you want to run through a little bit about sort of how the last few weeks have played out? So when fighting broke out between the army and the RSFs on uh, 15 April, it was quite a surprise, not because there was no fear of confrontation. Uh, to the contrary, I mean, Almost everyone following the situation in Sudan has at one point or another thought that 
um, the RSF and the army would start fighting. But following similar tensions in February and March, uh, Burhan and Hameti met around 11 March and agreed to de-escalate and form a joint military committee to handle their issues. So not many people were expecting the situation to deteriorate in such a short time and lead to armed confrontation. And maybe, Shuit, just to go back a bit further, so as we heard up top, there were these mass protests in 2019, thousands of Sudanese on the streets. Borhan and Hameti worked together then to oust former leader Omar al-Bashir. Then after sort of more negotiations, there was this power-sharing arrangement with the civilian prime minister, Abdallah Hamdok. And then at the end of October 2021, again, Burhan and Hameti sort of worked together, this time to oust the civilians and, in essence, seize power. There's then more rounds of talks. And in December, the armed forces and Hameti agreed to hand over power to civilians. And they set a timeline for that that was due to hand over in April. There were sort of five issues that that December agreement left still to resolve, most difficult of which was security sector reform. Do you sort of want to run through how that issue has triggered the fighting today? Their relationship has actually started breaking down uh, since the coup, the October coup. Uh, so Hemeti had actually accused Burhan of reinstating uh, Islamist Bashir era, Islamist to the military, to the intelligence and civil service. Islamist and Hemeti had um, a fallout just after the coup removing Bashir. Uh, but the latest flare-up or tensions got worse when in February and early March, the army and RSF were uh, negotiating their terms of secure sector reform. And when you say security sector reform, what that basically entails is the RSF integrating into the army under Borhan's command. Security sector reform would entail, uh, actually, uh, as per civilians, it would include sort of purging the army of Islamists, that loyalists to Bashir. It would include uh, integrating the RSF and also uh, the former armed groups that are signatories to the Juba Peace Agreement. And security sector reform was identified as important for further negotiation with the, when the RSF army and a number of civilian actors signed the framework agreement in December. Uh, so security sector reform was the last of the five issues uh, for negotiation. And it was going to be the most controversial, but the most consequential in terms of uh, power handover from the military to civilians. So Richard, when they signed this agreement in December after all these months, over a year of negotiations in a way since the uh, coup in October 2021. They finally signed this agreement in December 2022, in which the military agrees to hand over power to civilians. Um, th these five sticky issues, uh, they punt them. And yes, the security sector is one of them. Most of these issues pitted the civilian elite um, versus the military elite. And um, what was interesting about this, this final one, which was, you know, called security sector reform, but basically came down to, like you said, how long it was that the RSF um, had to integrate into the army and what the chain of command was, um, which was all seen as a proxy as to uh, the power and autonomy of the RSF. This final uh, issue pitted Burhan against Hemeti. And that's where this standoff finally happens. Shewitt mentioned there was a bunch of incidents that we had escalation and de-escalation. Um, I think when you look back at where this relationship started to go wrong, there was a period after the coup where Hemeti um, started to drift away from Burhan. Burhan uh, started to uh, rehabilitate and turn to Islamists, former parts of the Bashir regime. This sort of threatened Hemeti. Uh, it also gave common ground between Hemeti and some of the civilian elite who both shared their hatred for, for parts of this old Bashir elite. That sort of drift continued after the December Framework Agreement. Um, there are parts of that December Framework Agreement, um, and I think maybe something that was a bit missed by uh, a lot of observers was the degree to which um, Hemeti's drifting towards the civilian camp and away from Burhan, just how destabilizing that was to the ultimate power structure that had been ruling Sudan since Bashir fell. So, um, like Alan mentioned, the army started to demand that the RSF uh, reintegrates into the army uh, within a two-year time frame, which was very much rejected by Hemeti, 
who originally proposed a 22-year time frame, but the civilians proposed as a compromise a 10-year time frame. And it said that informally, Burhan had agreed to this 10-year time frame, but when he went back to his uh, generals, it was very much uh, rejected by them. And we should mention that throughout these negotiations of security sector reform, both armies continued to mobilize their troops to various strategic locations in what many thought was posturing, you know, to have the upper hand during negotiations. And it was such a deployment of unestimated around uh, 100 uh, armored RSF vehicles into Meroe, which is a strategic st- stronghold for the army in northern northern Khartoum, um, where they also have an air base. And the de- redeployment of an estimated 60,000 RSF troops in and around Khartoum that triggered the conflict. So maybe let's talk a little bit about Hameti himself. So he's a very different character to the riverine elites, the traditional Sudanese ruling class is from the Nile Valley. Uh, Hamidi is from Darfur. He's from the, the West. He rose to prominence during the Darfur War as part of the Janjaweed, these militias that fought Darfuri rebels on behalf of the Sudanese government at the time, so Bashir's government. I mean, how has Hamidi got so powerful? So I think there's uh, several ways to look at this war and what's happening. In some ways, you could say this is the ultimate conclusion of the war in Darfur that Omar al-Bashir started, um, of course, in the in the early 2000s. It earned him the indictment at the International Criminal Court for genocide. That was 20 years ago. But what happened during that war was he, the army, as it had done in South Sudan for a very long time as well, uh, realized uh, tactically that it was cheaper, essentially, um, to arm a bunch of, uh, in this case, Arab tribes, more or less, um, to fight against the rebels who had taken up uh, arms against Khartoum. Um, and uh, these, these uh, you know, uh, Arab militiamen, you know, became known as, as Janjaweed, pejoratively. Um, uh, Himeti uh, comes from a small Arab tribe near uh, uh, the Sudan-Chad border. Um, um, and he arose uh, as part of these uh, Janjaweed, as they're known. Um, he even at one point briefly rebelled against uh, Sudan, but then became a, uh, a security advisor. And by 2013, he was made uh, one of the leaders of the Rapid Support Forces. And basically, Alan, the, the Janjaweed became the Rapid. It, it basically, Bashir formalized or semi-formalized the Janjaweed as a sort of parallel force to the, to, to the army for his own protection. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so these militias existed. Um, and what the rapid support forces did is after this problem was created of all these different, um, Arab militias who, who were very unruly and had their own grievances against Khartoum, the rapid support forces were in some ways a way of trying to rein those in and organize them so that Bashir could actually, uh, still control them. Um, and so that was created in 2013. And the rapid support forces, among other militias, uh, some of the intelligence services, became a sort of form of coup-proofing um, by Bashir, in, in which he did allow the army to, to wither. He was cultivating other powerful security forces. So you have this element in which, in, in one sense, the RSF arose out of the Janjaweed and was formalized as rapid support forces. Um, but then it also gets caught up in these national politics in which Bashir is looking for other forces he can use to sort of counterbalance the army. You know, I went back and read a crisis group report from 2012, uh, right after South Sudan's separation. And it warned that basically when Bashir would leave, there was a huge likelihood that many of the security services would turn on themselves because uh, they had grown so fragmented by that time. And that trend only continued after 2012 up until 2019 when he was finally ousted. And so by 2019, by the time of the protests, Khamiti is enormously powerful and rich, his RSF control these gold mines in the east. They've been fighting in Yemen with the Saudi-led coalition. They had a small number of the RSF were also fighting in Libya. And all this makes Hemeti hugely powerful. I mean, it's, it's really a meteoric rise for someone that, you know, many people in Khartoum, traditional elites, still kind of look down on. So Hemeti's story is, is, is really incredible. He's kind of a personification of you know, a lot of the pathologies of the Sudanese political system sort of coming home uh, uh, to roost. He, Bashir started to use him as something of a Praetorian guard, um, as I mentioned, but perhaps his biggest break came uh, from the Yemen war, um, in which 
the uh, Saudi and um, Emirati-led coalition in Yemen was asking Bashir essentially to send troops. Um, and Bashir uh, basically outsourced that duty primarily to Hemeti in the RSF. This was incredibly lucrative for uh, Hemeti, but it also allowed him to forge these ties uh, in the Gulf, um, especially in Riyadh and Abu Dhabi, and that proved especially critical. So you have Hemeti, who all of a sudden has all these forces in Khartoum. He meanwhile has all these gold mines, and he is uh, very cleverly using gold revenues to essentially fund and expand his rapid support forces. He's getting money from the war in Yemen. And now he has these, these uh, foreign patrons and ties um, in the Gulf as well. Um, and also him and Burhan had worked closely together. It might be difficult to uh, remember now, but Burhan and Hameti worked together in the war in Darfur. Burhan was uh, the SAF commander there for a period of time when uh, Hemeti was one of the uh, militia leaders. Um, so they know each other. They also coordinated together in the war in Yemen. Um, and so, yes, you bring us to this time where there's this huge popular uprising, awe-inspiring from Sudanese in 2019. Um, and you have the conditions uh, for essentially a military coup, but one in which Hemeti and Burhan had to work together. Um, uh, but one in which they also looked immediately to the friends they'd made in the Gulf during the Yemen war um, as well for backing. And now Hameti clearly doesn't want to integrate the RSF, his forces, under Burhan's command, which is clear he wants to keep them separate. But he's also been trying himself to move into politics for enemies, trying to present himself but not as a sort of warlord, but as a political leader with even presidential aspirations. So Hameti has long expressed his interest in running for elections and becoming the president of Sudan. He has... Um try to reform his image from a brutal Janjaweed leader to an able and progressive politician. He has tried to build relationships with many tribal leaders and communities across Sudan by uh, brokering peace deals among different warring tribal groups, providing humanitarian assistance to flood victims, you know, and uh, he has also led the peace negotiation process with armed groups that were essentially fighting against him and successfully concluded the signing of the Juba Peace Agreement. Uh, he has also held conferences and events, uh, which can only be described as an election campaign across Sudan. He has also tried his best to form alliances, you know, amongst Khartoum-based political elites, uh, most notably, you know, agreeing to many of the demands made by the Freedom and Change Coalition during the negotiations. So this all point to the fact that Hemeti is basically positioning himself to become a, a prominent political leader beyond the leader of the Rapi support forces. What about uh, Al Burhan, the military leader? It's not clear that he has those same presidential ambitions. He seems more motivated by keeping the army strong, independent from civilian government and able to exert power behind the scenes. But Burhan and the army, you know, they're aware that they will not be able to continue holding political power in the face of so much internal and international condemnation of the coup. So they're looking um, at aligning themselves to a civilian government they can partner with and who's not going to be too hard on them. Uh, if we look at uh, the negotiations to form a civilian government, Burhan was very vocal that the process had to include many more civilian groups beyond the forces for freedom and change who do not have the best relationship with the army. Uh, the army was insisting that um, other groups, uh, which includes former armed groups, but also other political parties which do not necessarily get along with the forces for freedom and change, are also included. And um, this might be to ensure that you know the transitional government that is formed is uh, more sympathetic to the army so that they don't lose uh, both their military might, political power, but also uh, their economic influence that the army sort of uh, controls a vast portion of Sudasi. So they're looking for their interests by aligning with the civil government. One of the interesting things all along in this, uh, since 2019, has been that 
Burhan has always remained in a, a bit of an enigma <laughs> to those who are engaging with him. Um, he doesn't quite act like a traditional strongman, even though in some ways, uh, uh, Sisi in, in Egypt might be his, you know, closest model in a way, but, but he rules by coalition. Um, he, he has many other powerful generals behind him. He didn't seem like someone who seemed obviously super ambitious, um, by people who dealt with him. He had, wasn't someone who had sort of stirred out to other um, in the course of his career, um, but also in the course of negotiations, he's someone who wavered a lot. He seems to commit to things and then kind of later walks it back, and that opens up accusations of reneging. But at, at the at the very core, this question of whether or not Alberhan is willing and able to hand over power to civilians as he's promised more than once has remained a fundamental question. There's now been a couple times um, in which uh, we were nearing a timeline for the army to hand over power. In one of those, a coup happened, and in the second time, this war has broken out. So you mentioned the uh, force for change and freedom, the civilian coalition that's been negotiating, that had been negotiating with the military and with, with both Borhan and Hameti. And then you also have the resistance committees, these committees that uh, sort of rooted in the popular protests that have sort of stood aside from the negotiations and uh, and criticized the FCC of of giving too much to the military or essentially being too compromising. I mean, how have the how have the civilian side how have they responded to this sort of outbreak of war? I can say that um, all civilian groups, uh, even though they have uh, political differences, they have they have come out strongly against the. I mean, they understand the extent that such a conflict, especially an urban-based conflict, can can have. So they were hoping that transition to civilian government would be concluded in April, and obviously uh, now it's going to be impossible. So far, the the military has not uh, declared a state of emergency, but that is expected to happen anytime soon. And that means that, as Alan mentioned, you know, the first transition ended up in a coup. And this transition, when everybody thought was going to uh, be concluded in, in April before uh, at the end of Ramadan, um, is now it had, the country has descended into conflict. So um, they have been very vocal against this conflict in one voice, I can say, yes. And in addition to the civilian side, the FCC, the resistance committees, you have armed groups, some rebels, some former rebels, that are separate to the rapid support forces, separate to the Sudanese army, mostly from the country's peripheries, so Darfur, South Kordofan, Blue Nile. Now, some of them signed this Juba agreement that you talked about earlier, Shuid, under which they sort of shared power. Some of them have ministerial portfolios and other rebels stayed outside the Juba agreement. But how have all these armed groups positioned themselves? I mean, is it likely they're going to get sucked in on one side or another? Well, if the conflict drags on, there is a probability that they will be asked to choose sides. Uh, but so far, they've been very vocal uh, against the conflict. They've actually tried to mediate between Hamati and Burhan. They've met both uh, men just before the conflict broke out. Uh, and they gave a press statement. This included Jibril Ibrahim, Mili Minawi, and Malik Agar. And just to clarify, these are the various leaders of armed groups, former rebels. Yes. Currently, uh, Jibril Ibrahim is the finance minister. Malik Agar uh, used to be a member of the Sovereign Council. He is the leader of uh, SDLM North, Sudan People Liberation Army North. Uh, Mini Minawi is one of the panches. Mini Minawi is governor of Darfur. So they, they tried to mediate between the two men. They met with them and they had a joint press statement to say that they agreed to de-escalate the situation. But obviously the next day the conflict erupted, so the mediation was not very successful in sort of preventing the actual outbreak. But they're still very clear that they're against the conflict. They haven't taken sides whatsoever. So we'll come in a moment to sort of prospects for some sort of ceasefire, maybe ways to maybe push the two sides towards a ceasefire. Farid which crisis group, which we've called for in a statement this week. But before that, could we talk about the international politics of the crisis? So, Alan, you've talked about Hameti's, well, both Hameti's and Borhan's ties to the Gulf, but Egypt is also close to Borhan and the armed forces. I mean, in some ways, that's, you know, it might be surprising. 
as you said earlier, Borhan has brought back a bunch of Bashir era Islamists into the army, but despite its distaste for Islamists, Egypt's uh, government, the Sisi government, seems to have decided that throwing its weight behind the Sudanese armed forces is the best way of protecting Egypt's interests in Sudan, particularly hedging against Ethiopia. For his part, Hameti has reportedly some has these ties to the Wagner Group, uh, this sort of by now infamous Russian private security company linked to the Kremlin and sort of various other foreign ties. Plus you have the African powers, the region and the US and UK all involved over the last few years in some of the mediation between the military and the civilian side. So how might all this play out? Well, when the protests were going on to oust Bashir, um, this is when we saw particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE um, step in um, and heavily back Hemeti and Burhan, who both of whom they, they knew through the war in Yemen, um, and who they saw as an opportunity to 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 have a key ally, and as they saw it, I think also sort of protect Sudan from this, you know, Arab Spring like uh, a revolution. Um, so this created this standoff in 2019. You had many more months of protests. Obviously, the protesters ousted Bashir, but were not very happy that his generals took over. Um, and so what happened is on the on the sidelines of a of a meeting between the US, the UK, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, which was known as the Quad, was a grouping that was a meeting over the war in Yemen. But on the sidelines of one of those meetings in 2019, uh, the UK brought up to everyone else and said, let's talk about Sudan in this forum. This became a forum uh, that really brokered a lot of the the heavy power politics between the Burhan and Hameti on one side and people who came to represent uh, the civilian side and the protester side um, on the other hand. And whenever there's been crises, both in 2019 and then after the the coup in 2021, um, this has been the formula. The basic idea being essentially that the US and the UK have uh, close ties with a lot of the civilian elite and the uh, and the Saudis and Emiratis have close ties with both Burhan and Hameti and are able to bring them to the table. But officially, on top of that, you've had the African Union, um, who helped broker that 2019 deal. You've had the UN. Um, and then recently, you've had uh, what's called the Trilateral Mechanism, which is the, the UN, the AU, and EGAD, which is the Regional Horn of Africa uh, block as well. Um, that's been very um, important. So you've had a lot of different players. And uh, Alan, do you think any foreign power might weigh in on one side or another, particularly if fighting continues? Uh, The longer this drags on, the more and more likely it is that we'll see pretty strong intervention, I think, from outside Sudan in this conflict. Um, I'd say diplomats and Sudanese worry most about Egypt um, wading in. There are reports that Egypt has sent in planes and pilots and has, you know, uh, and clearly, generally, is supportive of Burhan, although we shouldn't suggest there's been some massive intervention on Burhan's side. We haven't seen evidence of that yet. But I think uh, when people look at actors who, who might intervene on behalf of Burhan right away, they look at they look at Egypt. Um, I think it's far less clear who would intervene on Hemeti's behalf. Um, yes, he's, you know, made visits to Asmara, but um, a lot of that seems to be uh, people connecting dots more than anything uh, uh, concrete. Um, and um, yes, he has ties with Wagner, but we think the media has overplayed that angle for obvious reasons. Everyone's obsessed with Russia and Wagner, um, but they're just not a player that uh, Sudanese or diplomats working directly on this crisis are really mentioning. And and Wagner's role and connections with Hameti have always been more gold mining focused than um, the security focus that we've seen in other places. Um, uh, I think a key question moving ahead is if you see balance of power shift, will some of these other outside actors decide uh, to get involved and pick a side? And so I think we are looking at, you know, a window in which we can try to end this. The longer it goes on, uh, the the higher the risk, obviously, that we see this um, become a much more uh, uh, internationalized war and one that's probably a lot more difficult to bring to a close. If you look at some of the other conflicts nearby, so in North Africa, in other parts of the Horn, where you've had Gulf actors, other Middle East powers involved, it's traditionally been Qataris and Turks back in one side, Egypt, Emirates and Sudan back in the other, reflecting sort of the main division within the Gulf Cooperation Council. And obviously, there's a lot now that's changing in the region. Some of those relationships look considerably better than they did a few years ago. There's been this thaw in the Gulf 
tried to turn the page on the GCC spat. But even so, the fact that this is different, I mean, this doesn't pit two sides backed by you know, competing regional powers against one another. The Emirates and Egypt generally get along. The Saudis are uh, influential with both of them. I mean, might those regional powers who generally get along themselves, and might that be a way to get the, the two sides back to the table? Uh, yes, we, we do not have the scenario here, like you said, where this is a product of competition in the Middle East, for instance, that's then playing out uh, in Sudan. Um, uh, this is a case where, uh, you know, the Saudis and Emiratis both have, t- have ties to both men. Egypt, yes, uh, is on the side of Burhan, uh, but they're probably not going to directly work against each other in Sudan for some grander uh, purpose. So so I think, you know, one of the uh, upsides that we've seen thus far is that Sudanese themselves, uh, pretty much all parties who are not these two that are fighting, as well as um, pretty much all external actors, um, including at the UN Security Council, which, you know, obviously hasn't had a lot of united uh, statements recently on peace and security issues. Uh, we've seen united condemnation of this, a call for a ceasefire, um, and yes, the outside actors are essentially calling both men and telling them to stand down for the most part. Um, and this has provided, like you said, a lot of, you know, this pro- has provided mediation opportunities. It just hasn't led to anything yet because the two men really both see this as an ultimate showdown for who controls Sudan. And let's say that, um, although, as, as you say, it doesn't seem likely for now, but let's say that, that there were negotiations now. On the one hand, you've got these two sides the army, the RSF, Borhan versus Hemeti, who need to be persuaded, or maybe in the case of Borhan, his officer corps, his generals need to be persuaded that this is a you know this is a bad idea. This is destroying Sudan. That their interests are better pursued by talking. On the other hand, there's the risk of structuring talks around those two leaders. There's the risk of empowering further the two men responsible for this ruin and who presumably now sort of widely reviled among many Sudanese. And of course, you still need to get back to civilian rule. They need to include others, civilians, the FCC, and other armed groups. I mean, do you want to say something about that balance and how sort of a return to negotiations might be structured? So, I mean, in terms of mediation, um, everybody has been calling for a ceasefire. But like Alan mentioned, both, especially the army, is hell bent on disbanding the RSF, and they've reiterated this. Um, they have rejected a humanitarian ceasefire recently, even though Hemeti, uh, you know, keeps on saying that he's ready to respect a ceasefire. The army is saying that, you know, he's trying to regroup. So like Alan mentioned, uh, they're nowhere near ready to start negotiating. So that's one thing to keep in mind. We haven't seen any sort of fatigue. Uh, we haven't seen any sort of realization that this situation cannot be resolved through the barrel of the gun. We're not there yet. But having said that, obviously, you know, it's very critical that the fighting stops as soon as possible. The humanitarian situation is so dire that there has to be a concerted effort, uh, local and international, to push the warring parties to stop fighting first and foremost. So this has to be the number one priority. Number two priority, I think, for everyone is to make sure that no one else gets involved. Not only you know outside actors, uh, neighboring countries, but also uh, uh, local actors. The the armed groups should not get involved. The different uh, tribal uh, leaders and their militias with whom um, the army or the RSF may be aligned with should not be involved. So we should keep our eyes on these issues as we speak about uh, mediation, like you said. And then obviously, in terms of uh, getting back uh, to the negotiating table, we have to keep in mind that there was a process uh, going on for a civilian transition. And even though the army has sort of taken it upon itself, to integrate the RSF, it's actually, as per the December framework argument, is the responsibility of a transitional civilian government to lead on security sector reform. So the priority when we look at beyond the conflict should be transition to civilian authority. The longer that uh, the two continue to hold power, even if they manage to de-escalate this situation, it is very much probable that another one can flare up soon. Do you think, shall we, there's, there's a chance that one side sort of not defeats the other because you know defeat in a situation like this is probably very unlikely, but one side 
gains the upper hand. Let's say that the could be the security forces pushing the RSF back into Darfur, you know, away from the Nile Valley. Or, you know, it could be the RSF capturing key military installations in Khartoum. Do you think that a shift in the balance of force might then change dynamics, sort of unblock in some ways what's possible in the transition? Right now, it's very difficult to say who would win. Uh, the army seems to have the upper hand in, you know, command structure, uh, heavy artilleries, including aerial capabilities, um, while the RSF seems to have the flexibility uh, for an urban uh, guerrilla type warfare, which will make it impossible for either one of them to have a total victory over the other. Even if one is um, victorious over the other in Khartoum, uh, we have to remember that Hemeti will probably then retreat to Darfur, which will be uh, 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 um, catastrophic, not only for Sudan, but for neighboring countries like Chad, uh, which might be pulled into the conflict through uh, cross-border communities that have ties with Hemeti's uh, tribe. So that a stalemate would be uh, the best case scenario so that they realize that they cannot win and they come back to the negotiating table. But when that stalemate happens, then mediators, has to, they have to be ready to uh, to sort of propose a feasible ways forward. And the stalemate wouldn't just leave mediators facing exactly the same problem related to the integration of the RSF, these two equally balanced, seemingly irreconcilable forces, or is the hope that you'd hand over power to civilians to manage that? Is that realistic? Uh, what this conflict has shown, amid other things, is just how unstable this uh, power structure in Sudan was that, you know, that essentially came out of the post-Bashir era where you had you had other groups, but essentially you had these two armies. And these sides thus far have appeared pretty evenly matched. It was always said leading into this that, you know, one of the reasons this was the nightmare scenario is is because they were two powerful state actors, but also it was very unclear which one would win. Um, but it's, but there's such dissimilar forces. Um, you know, you have an army on one side, which it's not clear if it's fit for purpose for fighting, but has air superiority, has clearer possible backing in a drawn out fight from, from foreign sources. And then you have Hemeti, which is essentially pulling a swarm of these militia fighters into Khartoum, sending them into urban warfare. Um, and Hemeti himself is just, uh, hell bent on basically, um, capturing the city and capturing uh, the army headquarters. Um, and so obviously, if you have a ceasefire that freezes it now, you've frozen Sudan in the exact same situation that it was in. I think one of the questions is, is a ceasefire really realistic if one of them gains an upper hand? Um, if Saf pushes out Hemeti, if Hemeti himself doesn't sue for peace, um, in order to stay in the political center, which he might, I think it's it's unclear. Um, one of the interesting things has been that he's been uh, more focused on Khartoum. Hemeti is pulling his forces from around the country to Khartoum. This is a pure power struggle for the political center. Um, but if Hemeti is pushed out, if he goes to Darfur, for instance, um, yes, that would create a different political configuration in Sudan. It would also lead to a massive new war um, in Darfur and would destabilize that region. Um, if Hemeti gained the upper hand, it's an open question whether or not everyone outside powers would let Hemeti um, take over. He remains an outsider in the uh, Khartoum elite power structure. Would he be allowed to rule Sudan, or are we looking at a massive state collapse scenario? Look, a, a ceasefire that preserves the status quo is clearly awful for many reasons. It's just that all the other scenarios look even worse. I think one way to look at this in terms of the integration um, is on some levels, this is, you know, an, an ultimate power struggle. Um, but in another way, um, this came to the head, um, not because anything was forcing it per se to an ultimate conclusion, but because they just had to reach an agreement on this ultimate timeline. This was, you know, one saying two years, the other saying 10 years. Um, these are the sort of technical details that should be bridgeable. So if you can get an agreement on the actual timetable, you know, does that open up space to then allow the sort of muddling through a very messy, you know, probably unimplementable um, agreement, but one that doesn't come to a head like it did in April? So will Sudanese accept uh, a solution that leaves these two who have, you know, wrought such utter destruction um, on their lives, you know, a, a, a solution that, you know, keeps them in that position? It's very depressing to think about. Shawid, what do you make of that? How are people going to view these two men 
presiding over another stage of the transition. So these are two of the strongest armies in Sudan, not only in a political sense, but also economically. So we would want them to reach some kind of negotiated agreement, a ceasefire, a, some kind of way forward. But obviously, like Alan said, it's going to be unpalatable for most Sudanese that any political process would continue to include them. But the reality is that they were already unpalatable to a lot of Sudanese actors, you know, resistance committees, uh, and many, many uh, political parties were very much against the fact that civilians uh, were negotiating with the army, both Burhan and Hemeti. So it was already unpalatable. But the reality is that, you know, they're very powerful and there there was no other choice but to work with them. And I think um, we're going to uh, square one when this conflict ends, uh, if it does anytime soon. And we are going to, again, have to work with them. There doesn't seem to be any other realistic way to, to move forward uh, Sudan's transition, but also it, Sudan's security. So much of the commentary over the past week since this fighting broke out has focused on what the world and especially what Western powers should have done to stop this happening. And there's been this sense in particular that Western capital should have leaned more on Borja and on Hameti to hand over power. Is that something that the Sudanese also feel? What do you make of those arguments? I mean, how much influence did the US, for example, have on the two leaders given their ties to the Gulf and to other countries? I think as Sudanese citizens, I think they mostly criticize their own political parties more than anyone else. And this is because, you know, the political parties had a lot of internal bickering. Uh, they could not maintain unity uh, to create a powerful enough force against the military. They didn't have the upper hand when they were negotiating. But when it comes to external actors, external actors are always going to look at their own interest as much as they want to help uh, Sudanese actors, whether it be politicians or Burhan or Hemeti, to come to the negotiating table and reach an argument uh, that leads to peaceful transition. So uh, it's difficult to sort of have a blame game on externals. I think the responsibility first and foremost lies on Sudanese to move things forward. All that Shuit said is obviously very true. Sudanese are very frustrated with their elite, essentially, who have massively failed them over the last few years. I do think outside actors were far too slow, um, especially uh, Western actors were far too slow to come in and provide serious, swift economic assistance um, to the Sudanese under Prime Minister Hamdok. I think that was clear. One of the depressing things we hear from officials as they felt like they were just starting to make headway and lifting the Sudanese economy at the time the coup happened. It just took too long. Um, it took the US far too long to lift the state sponsor of terror designation, which was a real weight on the uh, Sudanese economy. I think it's fair that Sudanese are upset at what they call the international uh, community. Sudan's conflict has become incredibly externalized, and that external involvement has not worked out for them. Um, however, the criticism tends to be very heavily U.S. directed. And, you know, the U.S. 20 years ago was, you know, the main behind the scenes global power behind the comprehensive peace agreement uh, in Sudan, which led to the separation of Sudan. At that time, during uh, the CPA period, the Gulf was just not a major player in the politics of Sudan. It is such a sea change that we are now talking about Sudan 20 years later, and the main powerful external actors sit across the Red Sea. This is a sea change. And so a key question I have, let's say that the US had just demanded these two military leaders step aside, they continue to support um, essentially the, the protesters. Um, I think an assumption on that is that it would raise pressure on the military actors. But I think it was a very strong likelihood uh, that it would have made uh, the Gulf actors essentially go their own way. The bet that the American and, and British diplomats made was essentially you had to find a Venn diagram 
where you had overlapping interest uh, between the Gulf and the West on stability in Sudan. And if you didn't, you'd have cross currents, and those cross currents would have destabilized Sudan even more. So I think this unipolar era where where someone could come in and just heavily pressure the um, the the generals. But there were plenty of powers who were not going to just back civilians just because the U.S. did. I think, though, something that I take a bit more seriously in the criticism is there is all too often deadline diplomacy in which outside actors use very uh, indelicate, uh, blunt timelines uh, to pressure parties um, who are often leading um, fragile, unwieldy coalitions who are under a lot of pressure, who are armed actors in fragile contexts. Um, I think we cannot ignore the fact that this agreement came out in final stages of negotiations and wonder what sort of pressure these parties were put on and wonder whether or not that pressure you know, is worth the risk that comes with it. We obviously understand that deadlines are a means of forcing parties to actually reconcile, but there are also uh, these moments of, of ultimate tension the risks of heaping all this pressure sometimes. It can work, um, but the downside is so high in contexts like Sudan. I wonder if that's not the area that we should actually reflect on the most after this. Right. Yeah, indeed. Although for now, of course, looking back is useful if there's lessons for the future. But the priority today, of course, has got to be on stopping the fighting, stopping what is rapidly turning into a humanitarian catastrophe. This is not a normal situation. Obviously, crisis group is constantly calling for ceasefires um, in this region and others to halt conflict. Um, the absolute imperative right now must be to halt fighting specifically for humanitarian reasons. Millions of Sudanese are trapped across Sudan, but also in Khartoum. Um, it's essentially a collapsed city at this point without running water, without electricity, without uh, medicine, with widespread rooting. People are out of food. People are out of water. People can't seek medical care. People are being bombed. Um, the, the city is collapsing and the humanitarian crisis is growing at, a, at just a, an incredibly sickening um, speed. And there's no way really to get uh, supplies in. The airport is closed. The roads are closed. You, you can see, you know, where this is heading and how bad it could get uh, very soon. So, yes, uh, we need to there needs to be a resolution to these political issues. But these calls for a ceasefire really come down to a pure humanitarian imperative right now um, to really ease the suffering that's only going to get a lot worse if these two parties don't stop soon to to allow some humanitarian respite for everyone. Alan Shawick, thanks so, so much again for coming on. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Sudan, all the background to the fighting, and the statement that we talked about. That's all on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub. And thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch with podcasts at crisisgroup.org if you have any questions or suggestions or concerns. If you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. There's a pretty good chance we'll come back to Sudan next week, given the direction this is likely to be headed. So I hope you'll join us again for that. <laughs> <laughs>